Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. May I last week, I got to say this out of the gate. Last week, we had an incredible week last week. We had incredible worship time as we have had this morning. But last week, we baptized 10 people. 10 people declared to the world, yeah, that they are now followers of Jesus. And I brought that up because I thought, we have so many new folks that are coming in and thinking, what in the world is that board over there for? And so the board with the light bulbs on it, those are those those are individuals who have given their life to Christ and now have said, I want to follow him and live the rest of my life for him. And that's, those bulbs represent those who have given their life to Christ this year as well as last year. And so we want to keep filling the board up and we put their pictures up there. And I say that because of this. Maybe, somebody, maybe some of you are here today and you know you've trusted Christ as your Savior, but you've never gone public to the world with baptism going, I'm going to follow him. We'd love to let you, let you let us know that. We'd love to guide you and to take you down that step, the step of obedience to let the world know that you belong to him. So think about that. Pray about that. If you've never done it, we would love to share in that moment with you. Now today, we're going to continue through the book of Galatians. We've been kind of walking through it. And as we started this book, what we found out is that the Apostle Paul defines what is known as the gospel. Now, the gospel is, basically means the good news. So when he talks about the gospel, that's synonymous with the good news. And so Paul, writing to churches in an area known as Galatia, he says, I need to de define for you what the gospel is. And here it is. Jesus died for our sins to rescue us. That's it. There's nothing more than that. The Savior of the world, the Son of God, came to this world to die for our sins to rescue us. And so right out of the gate, Paul defines the gospel, the good news, and then he spends some time defending the good news, letting us know that what they had believed and what they had been taught was incorrect. Here's what I mean. There were a group of people, this is a church word called the Judaizers, these people that were Jewish by birth, they called themselves Christians who were teaching this, that as a Jew, you have to, yes, accept Christ, but you've also got to obey the law. You've got to, it's Jesus plus something else. And Paul said, it's not that at all. So he defines the gospel. He defends the good news, the gospel. And then he reminds them as churches, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that's what unites us. That's what brings us together. And I said this last week. If you looked around the room, we are filled with ethnicities. We are filled with different backgrounds and different cultures. What is the common denominator that brings us together? It's the good news of Jesus, right? And so he said, I want you, that's what you, unites you. And then he even began to talk about another issue, and that's the issue of justification by faith, meaning what gives us right standing with God? Well, these Judaizers were teaching, oh, well, you're saved by works as well as Jesus. Also, it's Jesus plus works that gets us right standing. And Paul said, no, we are saved by faith through grace, right? Through grace, through faith. That's what saves us. It's faith. We also have a right standing with God because of faith apart from our works. And then last week we saw Paul defend that position. Paul defended it by doing several amazing things. He first of all points back to their story. He goes, listen, how did you receive the Holy Spirit that lives in you? Was it by works or was it by faith? No brainer, right? It's by faith. And then he does something that would really have been a dagger to the, the heart of these Jewish people. He refers back to the primary, most famous, most notable, most revered patriarch in their lineage, Abraham. And he says, hey, Abraham, you know him? Oh, yeah, he's, he's like our, one of our best forefathers. Like, he's on the who's who's list of the Jewish calendar. I mean, this guy, everybody knows Abraham. Well, what gave him right standing with God? Faith. And then he points to something powerful. He points to Jesus. 
At the very end of the passage last week, he points to Jesus and he says this, Jesus, because he came for us, he took on our curse. In other words, he paid the penalty for our sin. And the only way you can receive what he's done for you is by what? Faith. Faith. Right? So Paul has established from the get-go the way we're saved, the way we're in right standing, the way we you know, experience Christ and receive the Holy Spirit is all by faith, not by works. Now today Paul's going to do something a little different. Paul kind of peels the onion layer back one more notch. Now he's going to compare and contrast the promise of God that God made to Abraham with the law of God. Now let me define the two real quickly. Promises of God, the promises, we, there's, there's over 7,000 promises in the Bible. So in the promises of God, here's what the promises are about. The promises are all about God's faithfulness to humanity. It's all about God's faithfulness. It's about his will, his plan. You'll see him say, I will do this for you. I'm going to do this on your behalf. I mean, the promises are all about God's initiative to show love and grace to humanity. The law is the opposite of that. The law is man's faithfulness to a holy God. The law is all about how we are to work and the duties we are to perform in order to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to God. And so Paul's going to contrast those two. And here's why he does it. Because these Judaizers, these people, it says it's Jesus plus the law, have come in and they've begun to teach it's the law, it's the law, it's the law, it's the law. And specifically, he's referring to the Ten Commandments. It's about you've got to keep all Ten Commandments because that's what's most important. And Paul says, it's not. Now, follow me for a moment. Is Paul going to say that the law is not significant? Not at all. He's not going to say the law is not important. But these Judaizers are saying that if you want to be right with God, you want to be saved, if you want the Holy Spirit, it's all about keeping the law. And Paul says, no, you are wrong. So the primary focus of the life of a believer isn't to embrace the law, it's to embrace the promise of God. So what Paul's going to establish is the promise of God, the promise of a seed that was going to come, the promise that Jesus come to offer life to those who put their faith in him, the promise of that, that every believer should cling to that promise first, primarily, and as a result of clinging to that promise, now we live a life that's honoring and pleasing to him by keeping the law. If that made sense today, church, say amen. Some of you are like, I don't know, I have no idea, right? But you get, you get that, right? Promise and law. So what, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to me Galatians chapter 3. And there's really two overarching points I want us to see in the passage. And the first one that Paul's going to build is in verse 15 through 18. Look at me in verse 15 through 18. To give a human example means he's continuing his conversation from last week. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You might want to underline that word in your Bible. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to how many? How many? One. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I meant, that the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, I know there's a lot there, and I want to kind of unpack it for a moment, but here's the first thing I want you to write down. What Paul is establishing is the superiority of God's promises. Remember, the promises are all about what God is going to do for humanity out of his love. 
Law is all about how we're going to live a life that pleases him by obeying him. Does that make sense this morning? There's distinguishedly different. And so Paul says, yes, while the law is going to be important, we'll get to that in a minute, we need to embrace the promises of God. And so what he does is he tells us four reasons the promises of God are superior, are primary over the law. And here's the first one, because the, the promises of God have been ratified. Look at me in verse 15 again, and then I'll define that word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. That word ratified means an argument that has become official. That's all it means. An argument or an arrangement, not like an argument like they're fighting, but a conversation, an agreement, that's a better word, an agreement that has become official. Now, I love what Paul does here. He compares man-made promises with God's promises. And what he establishes is this. Like man-made promises, God promises are very similar. And here's what I mean. Once they have been ratified, agreed upon, once they've been ratified, they are binding. Everybody hear me say that? Once they're ratified, they are binding. The way we do it in today's world is through contracts. How many of you have ever signed a contract before? Have you have a home? You signed a contract, didn't you? Right? And you came to an agreement, even though there might have been tears in your eyes and a lump in your throat. You came to an agreement when you signed on the dotted line exactly what you were going to pay for that house. And if you don't pay for that house as often as they like, which by the way is 30 days in case you didn't know that, and if you don't pay for that house, what are they going to do to it? What are they going to do? They're going to take it from you. But when you signed and they signed and the notary stamped it, it became ratified. It is a binding agreement between two parties of what you're going to do. And he says, listen, here's what's interesting. The promises of God, God has ratified his promise. And it doesn't, just because the laws come along doesn't nullify it. But the reason that the, the, the promises of God are superior, are primary to the law of God, is because of this, because God himself has ratified. When God made a promise to Abraham, God ratified that promise. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I just want to give you an example. In the Old Testament, they did things very different than we do it. In fact, if you do what I'm about to describe, it's probably a bad thing. You should never do it, all right? So what they would do in the Old Testament to ratify a covenant, they would take animals, specific animals, and they would cut them in half. I know that's gross. I'm sorry. But they would cut them in half, and they would place them along the way there. And to ratify it, the two people would walk through the dead animals through the other side, meaning... If either one of us break this contract, may we be like these dead animals. That's really what they were saying. So that's how they ratified in the Old Testament. I mean, it was not paper contracts. They would cut animals in half, sacrifice them, and they would walk between them. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? No, you animal lovers are like, nope, that sounds terrible, right? But you, you kind of get the picture there. It was a, a blood, basically a blood covenant that was made. And if we break them, may we be like these dead animals. But God does something unique with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, you go back and look at it later. God says, hey, I'm making you a promise, Abraham, and I'm going to ratify it. So here's what God told Abraham to do. I want you to go get these certain animals he does. I want you to cut them half and lay them up like a traditional covenant was going to be made. But what was interesting, instead of God and Abraham both passing through these animals, God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And the Bible says that a torch like fire and smoke, which represented the presence of God, passed through 
these animals, ratifying the covenant. And you say, what's the significance? We'll get a little bit more to it in a minute, but the significance of this is the covenant God made with humanity was a one-way covenant. It was a covenant saying, you can't do anything to keep up your end of the deal. I'm going to take the whole thing on myself. I'm God, I'm sovereign, I'm eternal, I reign. You can't do anything, Abraham, to keep up this end of the deal. I'm the only one that can. Now think about it for a moment. Isn't that what God did with his son Jesus? For God so loved the world that what? He gave. Was there any part of that where you played a role in that? Was there any part of that where you helped ratify salvation to the world by passing through dead animals with the heavenly father saying that Jesus was going to come? Did you play a role in that? No. All by himself, God made a covenant an agreement with humanity that if you by faith put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. So God makes this covenant with Abraham and God himself ratifies it. He makes it binding. Another reason that the promise is superior is because it centers on Jesus. Look at me in verse 16. Look what he says. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now let's back up to the promises real quick. What promises did God make Abraham? Well, he made him a promise, first of all, that you're going to be the father of a great nation. You remember that one? And he made a promise also to Abraham that the seed that's going to come from your line is going to be the savior of the world. So let's go back to verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? One of the reasons the promises of God trump and are primary over the law of God is because they center on Jesus. Thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up, God told Abraham, you're going to have a seed, singular, that's going to come from your line that's going to be the savior of the world. And he makes that promise to Abraham. Thousands of years before Jesus shows up on the scene as a baby in Bethlehem, thousands of years before that, God is telling this patriarch Abraham, listen, we all understand the sin problem of the world, but I'm just telling you, Abraham, through your seed, there's going to come one who's going to bring redemption to the world. See, what makes the promise of God so important for these, Jew, these Jewish people in Galatia to cling to is a reminder that God himself ratified this promise. Abraham played no part in it. But God also, this promise focused on Jesus, the one that is the central figure of the good news. But let me give you a third reason the promises are superior to law. The promises came first. Right? The promise of God came first. Look what it says here in verse um, 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to the promise, making it void. In other words, the promise came first. Now, here's the actual math. Not that Paul's wrong here, but I want to explain it to you. 645 years after God made Abraham the promise, the law came about. But God being God, who is awesome continue to remind Abraham's descendants of the promise that he made. So he reminded Isaac, the son of Abraham, the promise that he made. He reminded Abraham's grandson, Jacob, of the promise that he had made about a great nation and about the Savior that was going to come. 430 years after God's final reminder to Jacob, God gave the law. The promise came first. Now here's my point. Just because 430 years past, it doesn't nullify 
the covenant promise that God had made with Abraham. Do you say amen to that church? Let me give an example. How many of you have been married over 20 years? Okay, be proud. Like, raise your hand up. Like, be proud. Fake it till you can make it, all right? How many have been married over 30 years? 35 years. Bless your heart. Right? Okay, so now, if you were here last week, you get that. So here's the thing about that. Say you're married over 20 years. Okay, both of you are married over 20 years. You remember the vows you took? Now, if they were the traditional vows, yeah, everybody. I mean, I mean like, do you really remember the moment, the day, the vows you took? Do you remember everything you said in that ceremony? Some of you do. I do. I'm weird that way. But just because 20 years has passed, do you look back and go, you know what? This whole rich or poor thing, I'm not sure I'm on board with that one. Or this sickness health, man, you're like a hypochondriac. You're always sick, so I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. I mean, just because time has passed, does that nullify the covenant that you made with your spouse? That's what Paul's saying. Just because all this time, hundreds of years passed, doesn't nullify the promise that God made. It doesn't, it's not Trump. Look, just because the law is newer doesn't mean you throw out the promise of God. Remember, the law was never designed to replace the promises that God made. The law was to show us how to live because the love that God has shown us through his promises. Let me give you one more reason. The promises are superior to the law. Fourth thing is because it depends solely on God's power. Look at me in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Here's the simple point. If our inheritance, and what is our inheritance? Our inheritance as believers, their inheritance as the churches in Galatia who put their faith in Christ is that their eternity is secure. That when they die, they're going to heaven. And that they have everything that belongs to Jesus also belongs to them. That's their inheritance. And what Paul says is this, if our inheritance is based on the law, that means it's based on my performance, and therefore it can be earned. But if our inheritance is based on the promise of God that he's going to give us life after death, that solely depends on him, and it's not something that can be earned, it's something that can be received. Man, do you see that picture there? That is beautiful for us to think about. You think about it, because of a promise of God, if our inheritance is based on the law of God, that means your performance is what dictates your inheritance, and therefore you can earn your eternity in heaven. But because the promises of God is based on I me, mean, because our inheritance is based on the promises of God, that means it solely depends on it. Much like Abraham's covenant, only God can keep up his end and our end of the deal. Guess what? Can you keep up your end of the deal to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God? No, you can't. You are going to fail. But the Holy Spirit that's in you is going to guide you because God knows, you know what? Hey, Randy Schwartz can't hold up his end of the deal. So I'm going to put my spirit in him to guide him and direct him. I'm going to keep up my end of the deal and your end of the deal all by myself because I'm God and you're not. So what we're reminded by Paul is, listen, when you think about promises and law, the promises are the primary thing that every believer needs to cling to, not the law. Let me give you an example. Many of you know this one verse. It's a verse that's quoted a lot of times, but this is one of the 7,000 promises. There's a couple, like one of them that we all know is that I will never leave you or what? Forsake you. Have you ever felt left alone in your life? Have you ever felt like you were in the pit and nobody there for you? He's like, I was there for you. And it's a promise you can cling to. 
Another promise we know is that when we suffer for the Lord, uh, Romans 8, 28, for God works all things together for the good. For those who suffer for the name of Christ, that he's going to take all things and work them together for the good. Just a quick question. How many of you have ever suffered for the name of Christ and bad things have happened to you? Persecution, difficulties, all, we all have, right? All of us at some level have. Have you always seen the good come out of that that God promises? No. And you're sitting there going, Lord, I pray it's not 430 years before it happens. But the point is, the promises are promises. And God will carry them out. And we need to realize the reason that the promises of God are the primary thing we cling to, not the law of God, is because it reminds us, the promises remind us, that it's God's demonstration of his love for you and I. What he's going to do for you. Why? Because he just loves you. He just loves me. So that leads me to the second thing I want you to notice here. Look with me in verse 19, 19 through 22. It says this. When Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until offspring should come to whom promise had been made. And it was put in place through the angels by intermediary. Not an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given to that, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's what Paul says. If the promises are superior and primary in the life of a believer, the law is inferior in the life of a believer. And here's what I mean by that. Is Paul saying the law is not important? Come on, church. Is he saying it's not important? No. Should you and I keep the Ten Commandments today? Yes. yes. The law was always a picture of what holiness looked like. Always a picture. All 600 and laws, maybe more than that, in Scripture were never designed to get us in right standing with God or to save us. They were all a picture about what does it mean to live as a believer and live a life that honor and is pleasing to the Lord. So what Paul is saying is not that the law is not a, is not a good thing, but it is secondary. Primary is the promises of God. Secondary is keeping the law. Why? Because when I realize the promises of God and celebrate how much God loves me and my love for him grows, I want to live a life that pleases him. And how do I do that? By keeping what? The law and obeying God's word, right? Now, here's what Paul does. Paul gives us some reasons and talks about the significance of the law. Now, I love what he does here. He asks a rhetorical question. He understands that for so long he's been talking about faith and faith and faith and faith and promise. So then he asked the question that everybody in the church of Galatia were asking, well, why do we have the law then? And that makes sense, right? If we're saved by faith, not the law, and if God's promises are filled through Jesus, not the law, then why do we have the law? And Paul goes, I'm glad you asked the question. Actually, I ask it, but I'm glad we're thinking this way, right? And he tells us four reasons why the law is so significant. Here's the first one. Because the law points out our sinfulness. He says, it's because of our transgressions. He says, look in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law, when we look at the perfect word of God, when we look at all the, the book, the God's word teaches us all the laws, all the precepts, all the principles about how we're to live. When we truly look and go through this, it reminds us, it's a mirror showing us that we are all broken. 
all of us. From those of you who think that you're the best and you're living a good life, we are all broken. The Bible says there's no one good, no, not one. We've all failed. We're all broken. And we are incapable on our own merit being right with God. So what is one reason the law is so important for every believer? Because when we look at God's word, it's a mirror in front of us reminding us that we're broken people, that we are sinful people, and that we need what? A savior, right? Let me give you a second reason he gives us. Not only does it remind us of our sinfulness, it points us to Jesus. Look at verse 19 again, the very last half. He says, why then the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place to the angels by an intermediary. In other words, he's saying, listen, the law, when it was put into place, the law could not deal with our sin. So it points us to a person that can deal with our sin. The reason the law is so significant is, yes, it reminds us of our sinfulness, but it points us to Jesus. You can keep this all day long and you're not going to be saved. You can keep it all day long and twice on Sunday and you're not going to be in right standing with God. This points us that because we're broken, we need a Savior and who that Savior is. It's not, it's not something in the world. It's a person and his name is Jesus. And this book points us to him. One thing I love to tell people is this, is that everything in the Old Testament funnels and points directionally to the cross of Christ. And everything in the New Testament points us back to the cross of Christ. There is one moment, an event in history, it's the death, burial, and resurrection that all of our faith hinges on. Everything in the Old points to it, and everything in the New points back to it. It is the single event in history that changed the world and changed our eternity. Right? Do you believe that, church? And so listen, when you look at this, he says, listen, the, the reason this law is so significant, I know I've told you to cling to the promises, but law matters. Here's why. It points out our sinfulness. It points us to Jesus. And listen to this. Thirdly, it shows the personal nature of the promise. Look at me in verse 19 and 20 again. When then the law, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to the, when the promise had been made and it was put in place through an angel's by an intermediary, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. In other words, he says there's a difference between the law and promise. The law was established through some mediators. There were two mediators in particular that, the law, that was, what I mean by mediator, somebody between God and humanity. One mediator was the angels. You go back to the story of Moses on the mountain. Who, who spoke to Moses? On God's behalf, it was an angel of the Lord. There was a mediator there. Who sent the law, who took the law besides Charles Heston? Who took the law down to God's people and communicated them in Ten Commandments? Moses did. Moses was a mediator between God and Israel. The angels was a mediator between God and Moses. There was intermediaries, meaning that the agreement, this contract, this law, which was a contract, was what they call bilateral. It was two parties being instructed by mediation, much like we do in today's world. But he says, but the promise is not like that. The promise isn't, doesn't have a mediator. There was no mediator. God himself spoke to Abraham, which means that, con that contract, that agreement, that promise that God made Abraham was unilateral. It was on one person speaking to Abraham, and I'm going to keep the whole thing myself. I'm going to honor it 
and I'm going to make sure that I carry, I fulfill this promise all by myself. So when we think about the law and the promise, we've got to remember that the law is about how to live a life that honors God, but the promise is a reminder how personally God wants to be involved in your life, Aaron, and your life, Nick, and my life. See, the promises of God remind us that we have a holy God who's sovereign, who's eternal, but he still cares about us. I, I get blown away when I read the psalmist when he says, who am I that you are mindful of me. See, when you, when you read the promise, I will never leave you for forsake you, is that personal or is that standoffish? That's personal. When he says, listen, if you suffer for my name's sake, I will work all things together for the good. I will take a terrible situation and I will do something incredible out of it. Is that standoffish or is that personal? It's personal. All the promises of God are personal. And when we read the law, it reminds us of the personal nature of the promise of God. Let me give you one more reason that the law is still significant. Lastly, because it imparts bad news about us. Look at me in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of effect by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, Paul says, listen, here's why the law is so significant. It points out our sin. It points us to Jesus. It reminds us the promises of God are personal, but the law points out our wickedness. See, when you read the Ten Commandments, that doesn't impart life, does it? It doesn't impart life. It points to our brokenness because we know, all know we've put other gods before us. We all know that we've had different idols. Maybe it wasn't a graven image, but we put other things in first place in our life. And so the law was never designed to impart life to us. It was designed to show us our need for Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to know. The law and the promises, listen to me, church, we're almost done. The law and the promises aren't two paths to salvation. There are two separate paths that lead to salvation. The law and the promise of God are two means that point us in the same direction that we all can only find salvation through the person and the work of Jesus. Promises point me to Jesus. The law shows me our brokenness, which points me to Jesus. The law and the promises aren't separate. They aren't contrary. They work in concert together. So Paul says, listen, the promises of God got to be primary thing you cling to. The law of God has got to be secondary, but you still got to cling to it because if you realize how much he loves you and you love him back, here's how you live. It's called the law, the Ten Commandments, the principles and precepts that Jesus taught us. But then he ends with something powerful. Look at me in verse 23 through 29. Now before faith, we were held captive under the law, in prison until coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for all are one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Here's what he says. Listen, you've got to make a choice how you're going to live. You're either going to live under the law or under the promise. 
Now, here's what happens. If you live under the law, he says the word, it imprisoned us. If you live under the law, it's like you're going back to prison. You're enslaving yourself, and you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to do good works and good deeds to please God, and you're never going to pay the debt. Never going to happen. And if you try to live under the law, you're forgetting what was the purpose of the law. He used the word here, guardian. What does a guardian do for a child? You protect and direct. That's a good bumper sticker, by the way, Marty, right? You protect and you direct. That's what the law was designed to do, to protect us from living a life of wickedness and to direct us to what holiness was about. And when we choose to live under the law, we're going back to slavery and we're ignoring the very purpose that God gave the law, which is to direct and protect us. But rather, you've got to choose, are you going to live under the law or are you going to live under the promise? Under the promise that if you put your faith in Christ, you'll be a son and a daughter of the Most High God. And when you do that, listen, 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 when you do that, you're no longer slaves, you're sons. You're no longer offspring, but you're heirs to everything that God has for you. And so this morning, you've got to make a choice. How are you going to live your life? I know for some of you, you've been here since we started Galatians. You're like, Doug, we keep talking about faith and law and faith and works. I know, Paul's like beating a drum here, isn't he? Why? Because people aren't getting it. And so it's so important for us to come back every week and go, what choice are you going to make? Are you going to choose to live in a life that says, I must perform, I must work, I must do my duty, and somehow God's going to look at me and go, you know what, you gave to charity, you're a pretty good person, which he'll never say that because there's no one good, no, not one, but he's going to look at me and go, because of what you've done, somehow I'm pleased with you. That's a lie. The enemy is feeding all of us. It's not going to happen. Why? Because we're all broken. And if we live under the law, we're going back to slavery. We're going back and letting sin reign and rule in our life. Or will we live under the promise? How about you? I mean, lately, I, I was thinking last night as I was getting ready for this morning, and this thought literally crossed my mind. Right now, Sonia and I are in the middle of trying to watch the Chosen shows. I've never watched them, so we're in the middle of that. And I watched the Jesus Revolution like twice, maybe two or three times last week, and, and going through the book of Galatians. And here was the conclusion I came to. I just can't get enough of Jesus right now. I mean, I'm literally like, I, I just cannot get enough of his words and his way and how he wants me to live and enough of his love for me. I just can't get enough. And I, I pray that as I thought that, I thought, Lord, I don't ever want to get over this. I want to live my life where I never have enough of who he is and what he's about. How do I live that way? It's living under the promise. It's saying, I choose to live a life that says, because of my love for God, I'm going to surround myself, I'm going to cling to, and primarily hold fast to all the promises that are filled in this book. And then I'm going to take the things that God has told me how to live, and they're going to be part of my life so that I can live in a way that makes much of Him and is honor and pleasing to Him. So my prayer for all of us today, especially if you're a believer, would you remember that your relationship with the Lord is personal? It's not standoffish. It's personal. It's a relationship that has to be nurtured. There has to be communication. There needs to be growth. So how is your personal relationship with the Lord this morning? Are you spending time? Listen, this is not just a book uh, that's a guideline to life. This is the very breath of God. Did you know that? 
This is the very breath of God. The Bible says that all scripture is breathed out by God. Yes, he used human authors, but as you thumb through the pages of scripture, this is God's word to humanity. And how do you know him personally? You read it. You read it. How are you doing well with that? So I just want to challenge this moment with all of my heart. If you don't know Christ, you've probably been looking in all the wrong places for the thing that you want the most. Peace, hope, joy, and love. And you're not going to find anywhere what you're looking for but in Christ. So you've got to make a choice. You're going to live under the law, works, performance, or you're going to live under the promise that if you put your faith in him, he'll give you eternal life. And if you're a believer this morning, can you get enough of Jesus right now? Is your walk with him so intimate and so personal that you can't wait for the next moment that you have by yourself just to spend time with him and tell him how much you love him and care for him? Maybe this morning as a believer, you need to recommit yourself to your personal relationship and your personal time with him. Let's pray together. God, I love you. I thank you for today. God, I know as we look at Galatians here, it seems to be a bit redundant. But God, I'm just reminded that that Paul points to the promises that all these Jews would have known about. Because one of the promises are personal, that you are a sovereign, eternal God who desires a personal relationship with each and every one of us. God, that blows my mind. God, if we just thought about it, we, we can look at people in like maybe government offices that have high esteemed positions, governors, mayors, president, congressman. There's no way they desire to have an intimate relationship with everybody, their constituents. No, there's no way. But God, you far exceed their platform. You are a creator. You're the one who sits on the throne. And yet you personally want to be in relationship with all of us? So God, I pray for the believers today that maybe you would stir something in us. Maybe we would say today that we're going to cling to the promises you've given us because promises remind us of personal touch that you give us. It reminds us of the love that you've shown us. God, I pray that we would stop living under the law. We would die to the thought that I must perform in order to please God. May we just be reminded today that if we put our faith in you, Lord, you are pleased and the life we live, according to your word, is a reflection of our love for you, not our desire to be accepted by you. God, would you be with us as believers? And God, I pray for that person here today that's been looking for love, hope, joy, and peace in all the wrong places. Today, would they find it in Jesus? Today, for the first time, Lord, would they say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you came to rescue me. And today I surrender my life to you. God, would you give them the courage to make that decision? God, just speak to us in this hour. May your Holy Spirit move only as he can. For it's in your precious and your Holy Son's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together if you would. Everybody stand with me. And this morning... I just want to challenge you. If you don't know Christ, if you're that person that's a believer that needs to renew your commitment to your personal relationship with the Lord, this altar's open if you need it. If not, you can do it right where you stand. 
Or if you need some additional prayer, I've got Kelly and Jason over here outside the curtain. We'd love just to pray with you. Maybe you've got some junk going in your life that you don't really want to tell anybody about, but you could use somebody just to pray over you and pray for you. They would love to do that. But listen, today, can we cling to some promises today? Some of you are hurting and you're struggling and you need to be reminded that God is for you, not against you. That he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. That he can take the terrible things that have happened in your life and he can turn around for his good and his glory. And this morning, can we just sing from the depths of our soul and the depths of our heart and cling to his promises and leave here today different than we did when we came in? How the Lord is leading this morning, would you just be faithful to respond as the band leads us?